Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 25 this evening. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Brothers and sisters, please do give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how very much aware we are of the need to walk before you in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Lord, to, to love you truly with all of our heart. Lord, how much we are aware that the things we believe ought to translate into the way in which we live. And so, Lord, we, as we think about this with the book of Hebrews, having spent so long speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ in his priesthood, and Lord, now transitioning to speaking about how we are to live in light of these great truths, how we do pray that you would help us to apply these things well, help us to understand how we are to live, and may it be, Lord, that we would always live in light of all of the truths that have been proclaimed concerning the priesthood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the grace so to act that we might hold fast on, uh, uh, in the face of great trials and temptations. For, Lord, we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, one of the things that... You may have heard, I'm sure probably all of you have heard, uh, if you have been much in uh, Reformed churches or even just evangelical churches that have expository preaching, is the relationship in the Bible between the indicative and the imperative. That's one of the things that is often said, pointed out, and in, in there is a, a structure to theology. The imperative always follows the indicative, or there's the indicative and then the imperative. Uh, sometimes this is almost assumed. It's said often enough that people just assume that everyone knows what it means. Uh, but it's probably good to, to review, particularly in light of, of this particular text here. Um, what we are talking about when we, we speak about the indicative and the imperative with regard to verbs is that these are the, the moods of the verbs. We're not going to get too deep into grammar, so you don't, don't have to worry about that. Uh, but, but if we say something is in the indicative, we're talking about the verb and its mood. And the indicative just means that the verb is simply stating a fact. 
So there are facts that are stated in the indicative, so it's indicating something to be true is the, is the idea. And the imperative is a command to do something. And so when we think about the relationship between the indicative and the imperative, what people mean when they say that is that the Bible declares certain things to be true, and then it commands you to live in a certain way in light of those truths. And it's always this order. You are never commanded to do something without there also being things you are to believe that are the foundation for those actions. And this is the reason why theology itself is so important, why good theology must always be practical, because good theology must always lead to a certain way of living. There's always a connection between these two things. And you can see this, uh, particularly this is usually pointed out with regard to Paul's epistles. Uh, very often in his epistles, there will be uh, the first uh, few chapters of an epistle will be about um, the things we are to believe. And then the last part of the epistle will be the implications. What are we, how are we to live in light of all of these truths? And the point is that these two things are in fact always connected. Good theology always leads to good living. Good theology always leads uh, to good living. And if you don't have the good theology, you can't have good living. This is one of the things that uh, liberalism got quite wrong in the, the, the 20th century. Liberalism believed we can hold on to all of the, the ways in which Christians live. We can hold on to all of the morality. We can hold on to all the, the ethical teachings. We can hold on to all of the need for things like, like prayer and, and worship and all these things. But we don't actually have to believe all the things that the scriptures say. We can, and if we just do the right things, if we're you know, nice to our neighbors, if we're serving the poor, if we're doing these kind of Christian things, that's all that's needed. And, you know, everyone disagrees about what we're supposed to believe anyway, and therefore those things are not important. And we can see all throughout the history of the 20th century and into even the 21st century how that's gone. Uh, it has not worked well at all. And the reason for this is because there is always this relationship. Good theology leads to good living. Bad theology will never lead to good living. It never will happen. Uh, however, one of the other things that we see in the scriptures is that the good theology does not automatically produce good living. It does not automatically produce uh, an understanding of how you are to live. And so the scriptures do not just say, you know, you're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he's given up his life to save you, that he has cleansed you from your sins, and then just leave you there. The scriptures explicitly tell you how you are to live in light of these truths. And so if you're wondering, you know, what is, uh, for instance, an example would be something like election. Uh, what's the, uh, what's the, the benefit of election in terms of my day-to-day -day life? Uh, how am I to live in light of election? Well, the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 9 is actually telling you uh, that election is for the sake of your comfort and faith, perseverance in believing in the promises of God. So, so you being able to understand unbelief all around you, um, that is, uh, and, and to be able to live in light of that uh, comes from your understanding of election. And so your comfort and your peace in this life is dependent upon that particular truth. So the Apostle Paul then is, is saying, um, this truth has this implication. And so here too, the author to the Hebrews is doing something very similar. We have been talking for a long time about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ serves as our priest. Uh, that has gone back all the way to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We have spent many months looking at all of the intricate details of what it means that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We've looked at all the implications of his death on the cross. We've looked at uh, all of the ways in which his death has atoned for our sins and all the, the various meanings for that, all the significance of it. And now, and now the author is saying, 
in light of all of that, here is how you are to live. This section of the book of Hebrews will take us to the very end. Uh, the main theological truth that the author has been wanting to put before the people of God is the priest of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's been one digression, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, that was an exhortation. But other than that, uh, all of it, from the end of chapter 4 all the way to the middle of chapter 10, has been one long exposition of the significance of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may have been wondering, you know, why are we going through all of these various details? How does this relate to my life? Well, the author of the Hebrews speaks to that right now. This is what he does in this particular text. And all the way to the end, all of it is implications, how you are to live in light of these things. And so the question then is, what in fact is the significance? Uh, if the Lord Jesus Christ is your high priest, if he has died on the cross to save you from your sins, what does that mean for the way in which you are to live? And the answer that's given here at the beginning of this, of this section that will close out the book of Hebrews is this. Three things. If Jesus Christ is your priest, you are to draw near to God. You are to hold fast to your confession of faith. And you are to encourage others to do the same. That if you really do believe that Jesus Christ is your priest, those are the three things you must do. Those are the three commands that are given in this particular text. You are to draw near to God, you're to hold fast to your confession of faith, and you are to encourage others to do the same. Now remember even further, the context of the letter, this will come out even more clearly in a couple weeks. The context of the letter is great suffering. Uh, so the answer then, uh, uh, even more about the practical nature of this letter and, and even this particular section. Um, when you are suffering, when you are going through trials and tribulations, how does the truth that Jesus Christ is your priest, how is that to bring you comfort? And how does that affect, how should that affect how you live in the midst of suffering so that you can continue to be faithful to God in the midst of your suffering? All of us uh, know the difficulties of suffering in this life. And often in suffering, there is a question, you know, you know what, what am I to do to maintain my faith in the midst of this suffering? And the answer is you must understand Jesus Christ is your priest and and then when, knowing he is your priest, you are then to draw near to him, hold fast to your confession, and encourage others to do the same. That is how you are to live in this world in the midst of all of your afflictions. Now, we'll, we'll look at this past under uh, really two headings. So we'll look at it with the indicative and the imperative. Uh, in verses 19 through 21, the author gives a, a brief overview and summary really of of everything he said about the priesthood of Christ. So going all the way back to chapter 4, uh, there's a, a brief summary in verses 19 through 21. The idea being, because these things are true, the indicative, uh, then in verses 22 through 25, therefore you must do these things. So we'll look at the imperative in verses 22 through 25. And again, there are three things uh, that the author is commanding that must be done in light of the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is our priest. So we'll look at the indicative and then the imperative and then the imperative uh, under those uh, three headings. So look with me again then at uh, verses 19 through 21. As I mentioned, this is a, really a summary of everything that he said to this point with regard to the priesthood of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the two main things that he's saying is that we have one, verse 19, boldness to enter, and then two, verse 21, a high priest over the house of God. So the idea is, is that through the priesthood of Christ, uh, the result of his work as priest, you have this entrance to God. 
that was what the author was describing in verses eight, uh, chapter eight through the, mi- the middle of chapter 10. The idea is that Christ has, uh, he not just is your priest, but he has acted as your priest in the context of the new covenant that you might be able to approach God. And what the author is saying is, look, you have that. You actually have this approach to God because Christ uh, has acted as your priest. He's given the sacrifice uh, 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 that was needed so that you can enter uh, and be in the presence of God. Then in chapters 4 through 7, there was a great focus on Christ in his office as priest. And the author is reminding you that you have such a high priest over the house of God. So verse 21 is basically the summary of chapters 4 through 7. You have a high priest. And as high priest in his service, you now have this great access uh, to God. So because you have these great privileges, how then are you to live? Now, just a reminder of what you have, verses 19 through 20, in terms of the entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, notice there is a boldness to enter, as the, as the author says here. Uh, not just that you are, are creeping in, but Christ has so thoroughly washed you from your sins. He so thoroughly cleansed you. His sacrifice was so thoroughly perfect. He has gone before you as the high priest beyond the veil that you might be able to enter and even that you might be able to enter with boldness. Being able to enter into the holiest place, the holy of holies, uh, not the one built with hands, as the author was laboring to show in chapters 8 and 9, but the heavenly sanctuary itself. You have a right to go into the Holy of Holies, the place that the high priest could only go once a year in the Old Covenant, going only into the the shadow and type of the real thing. And what the author is saying is, look, in light of everything I've said, you get to go into the Holy of Holies, but not, not the type, but the real thing itself. This is the privilege that you have because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just he who gets to do it as the high priest, but he's opened the way for you to go. And just as a reminder, he says, this way was opened for you through the extraordinarily costly sacrifice of the blood of Christ, that Christ himself has opened this way to you. He has cleansed you from your conscience. He's satisfied the wrath of God. He has inaugurated the new Uh, the new and living way for you to enter, not the way of the old covenant ministry whereby the high priest is given access just once a year, but he has given, he has made this way open through his own flesh. As the author says in verse 20, he has made the way open through the veil of his flesh. Now you remember the author was uh, describing the veil uh, in chapter nine. There was a veil that, that, that uh, divided the holy place from the most holy place. And the point that he was making with regard to that was that as long as that veil stands, if you remember in the beginning of chapter 9, he says as long as that veil stands, this was a a testimony that God himself was giving. The way to the presence of God was not open. It was not open. That veil had to be torn in order for you to be able to enter into the presence of God. And this then is a a significance then of when Christ's body was torn, that also at that moment, the, 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 the gospel writers record that the veil in, in the temple was destroyed, that it was torn from top to bottom, which was itself a testimony from God that the way is now open. And that's what the author is declaring, that Christ's body being broken was the way in which you could enter into the holiest place, into the holy of holies, into heaven itself. And he's reminding you, you have this great privilege and uh, not only did, did Christ do all these things for you, but he continues even now to be the great priest that you have over the house of God. You remember in chapter 3 that uh, the author speaks of Moses being faithful in all of God's house. 
but Christ is the one who is faithful over the house as a son. Moses was the most faithful of all of God's people, but he was in the house. Christ is over the house as the one who is the eternal son of God. And that is the priest that you have. He is the priest who serves at the, at the order of Melchizedek according to the principle of indestructible life, who's able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, who always lives to make intercession for his people and who has obtained an eternal redemption for his people by his death on the cross. This is the indicative that prepares the way for the exhortations that follow in the rest of the book. This is what the author is reminding you that you have. Now the question is, if all of that is true, so because you have this, what then are you to do? What then are you to do? Notice then, the imperatives begin in verse 22. Let us then draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, uh, this is quite a fitting first exhortation to be, get, to, uh, to be given. If all of this is true, all these amazing blessings with regard to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember one of the things we said right at the very beginning was the purpose of a priest is to mediate access to God. So now what the author is saying is if you have this access, what you must do is use it. You have to draw near to God. Uh, how, how much of a, of a lack of understanding of this blessing would it show if, if you have access to the Holy of Holies, the, the true Holy of Holies, where you can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence, not even with fear and trembling as the high priest did in the type, that you have this privilege won for you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and you would never make use of it. Uh, what the author is saying is, um, if you have all of these things, what you must do, the first thing is you must make it your habit in life to draw near to God, to draw near to God. There can really be, brothers and sisters, no greater privilege that you could possibly even conceive of in this world. And it's a privilege that you have uh, not just when you die and go to be with God in heaven or not even just at the resurrection of the dead, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and your body is raised and you see him with your, uh, with your very eyes. What the author is saying is this is a privilege that you have now, that you have now. And therefore, the most important thing for you to do is to make use of this privilege. If you have mediated access through the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father, you must make use of this all the days of your life. Draw near to God, the scriptures say, and he will draw near to you. Uh, Moses said that. Uh, how much more is this true after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when you can draw near to him in the Holy of Holies and know even that, that God has made you his temple, that he fills you with his Holy Spirit, that, that you might uh, never be far from him, that he's promised to be with you. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised to be with you even to the end of the age. Now, if you are struggling through life and wondering why there's no comfort, but you refuse to come near to God in prayer, in the word, and in worship, then basically what this means is you are not making use of, in your time of need, the one great thing that is needed for you. The one great thing that the scriptures have said the, and, and the privilege that was won for you by the blood of the eternal son of God who became man, that this might be the privilege that you have. Now, God is the one 
uh, uh, that the scriptures testify is ultimately satisfying to your soul. And if you think about the need for comfort then in the midst of whatever trial you're going through, whatever difficulty or temptation you're facing, the one thing that is needed is that you would draw near to this God and that you would find uh, the statement that Augustine has said so long ago to be true, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. If God has in fact made this way open to you, then make use of it, brothers and sisters. Notice uh, even the, the way in which the author describes this here in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Uh, a true heart, knowing that the new heart was promised in the new covenant uh, that the author has quoted from Jeremiah 31. Come with a true heart, not seeking other things, seeking simply God himself, with, with a heart that truly loves God in full assurance of faith, believing in the Son of God, believing in his work as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he really has granted to you this way uh, that's open to you for God. And notice even further, uh, in the, uh, having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. You remember this was something that the author was, was emphasizing so greatly in chapter 9, uh, that, this is, that this, this is what you have. Through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have true peace of conscience. You can come to God even though you're a sinner. And even though he is a pure eyes and to behold any evil, you can come and know that he will accept you because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is so powerful so as to cleanse. And, he's, and, and what the author is saying is, look, um, your, your conscience has been cleansed. You have been washed. Your body has been washed. You can appear before God. So make use of it. Uh, make use of this uh, 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 privilege, brothers and sisters, and come to God. Uh, come to God, draw near to Him in the Word, draw near to Him in prayer, uh, draw near to Him in the worship of God, prize the worship of God above everything else in this life, for it is here that God has promised to be with us, to appear uh, to us. Enjoy the fellowship with God who gave His Son to save you. That's the first thing that's said. If, if the way is opened, then draw near. If the way is open, then draw near. Now the second thing is, if the way is open and you draw near, then in the midst of whatever you're going through, whatever struggles, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession of faith. Now, the, the idea here is this. In your drawing near to God, you will find blessings beyond anything that you could even comprehend in this life. Uh, it is the most marvelous of all blessings to know the one true God. And if then you make it your habit of drawing near to God often, that is the thing that's needed for you to be able to understand how you are to hold fast to your confession. The idea is once your soul is satisfied in drawing near to God, how then could you think of turning away from Him? How could you think of, of giving up this confession of faith for the sake of some uh, worldly ambition or some worldly treasure? It's nothing compared to what God is offering to you in the gospel. Uh, you remember, if you've been with us, that we've been learning Psalm 17. We, we learned Psalm 17 last month for the morning service. And you remember at the end of the psalm, there is this contrast between the ungodly, who are rich to the end of their lives, who leave their wealth to their children. Uh, but the psalmist is saying, you know, not to put your hope in this. Rather, he speaks of being satisfied with, after he dies, being awakened to see the likeness of God. The idea for him is that it doesn't matter what he has to lose. It doesn't matter how much he has to suffer. He understands the glory and the blessing of drawing near to God and even having never experienced it like you can. Never having experienced it like you can. And then he says, if, if I get to draw near to God, 
I'm going to maintain my faith all the way to the end because it's better for me. Even if, even if I suffer and everyone around me is wealthy to the end of their days, they have every earthly blessing you can imagine, I will hold fast to my confession. As the psalmist says in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven uh, but you? And the earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How is it that you can maintain your confession of faith in this life? Remember, every trial, every temptation is ultimately a temptation for you to give up your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about why would Satan care about, say, um, uh, bringing great pain to Job, why did he care? He didn't really care about whether or not he killed Job. It was indifferent to him. The one thing he cared about was getting Job to abandon his confession of faith. That's the one thing. Why is it, if you think of the, the difficulties that we come that come in this life, we know that they're under the providence of God. God brings them on us for our good. Satan desires Christians to, be, uh, to go through great pains and trials in this world. He's not trying to kill you. He is trying to get you to give up on your confession of faith. That's the one thing that he's aiming at. If you were to ask that, how is it that you can maintain your confession of faith in the trials and and tribulations where there is a great temptation to say, you know, maybe it's not worth it for me to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is the soul that is satisfied in God, that often draws near and, and, and enjoys communion with God, that is the soul that will hold fast to God, hold fast to the confession of faith, without wavering. And brothers and sisters, that is what we, uh, we are commanded to do. If the Lord Jesus Christ is really this great high priest, if all of these promises are yours, that you can actually have this kind of fellowship with God, this kind of access to God, hold fast to your confession. The world can offer you nothing in comparison to these things. And notice what the author says there in verse 23 as well. The reason, he says, he who promises is faithful. He who promises is faithful. All the things that have been given to you, uh, your inheritance that you have where you will be with Christ forever, all of it, all of it is a promise that can never be broken. Remember the author uh, has uh, emphasized this in chapter 6. He's promised he cannot lie. To give you an even greater sense of the surety of what's coming for you, he promises in which he cannot lie, then he makes an oath where he swears by himself that he will give you all these things. Brothers and sisters, he who promises all these things to you is faithful. He who's opened the way for you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith without wavering. The, the, uh, the ability for you to live faithfully in this life is dependent upon your true understanding with the heart of the blessings and the privileges that have been won for you through the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you making use of these things by faith. You, you, you showing your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing near to Him, and then holding fast to your confession of faith. Now, the last thing that's said, so remember there are the first two, draw near, hold fast to your confession. The last thing that's said is let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works. One of the things that's been emphasized all throughout the book of Hebrews is that when you think about your perseverance, your faithfulness to God day in and day out, you are never to think about these things for yourself only. The author of the Hebrews has always emphasized, you are faithful for yourself. You also are to be faithful insofar as you, to, you are to encourage others. 
to remain faithful and to go on. The warnings that are given to you are given to others as well. And you are, out of love for your brothers and sisters, always to be striving to encourage one another that not one might fail to reach the goal. One might not fail to reach the promise. So you'll remember that the author in chapter 3 has spoken of the need to encourage one another as long as it is called today. He has said, fear, lest any of you appear to fail to reach the goal. That is to say, you are to be sure that none of you fails to reach it is the idea. You remember that in chapter 6, verses 9 to 12, the author has had great confidence in the church because of the love that they've had for the saints. Showing that love for the saints is foundational for the Christian life. There's no such thing as a good Christian walk without actually loving other Christians. And here, this is continued here. You are not to live the Christian life for yourself only. You are not to live the Christian life for yourself only. If you are a Christian, you have a duty and an obligation to show forth the truth of your confession of faith by loving other Christians, by loving uh, other Christians. And so he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Consider what you can do to help your brothers and sisters who also may be struggling. How can you show other Christians that you love them? Uh, Think about how you can encourage them to persevere. How can you enable others to use their gifts well? How can you use your own gifts to serve them and to build uh, them up? How can you speak a word of encouragement? The Christian life, and this is is one of the reasons why uh, we always say the Christian life is always to be lived out in the context of the church. It's always to be lived out in the context of the church. Your service to God cannot be faithful service if it's not happening in the context of showing love for God's people. That's what, that's the implication of this. Um, you know, verse 25 is often quoted as a, a text that shows the need to, to go to church. And of course, that's, that's true. It's the case. You must go to church. Um, but brothers and sisters, the, the point is with the, with the author to the book of Hebrews is that this has been an emphasis all throughout the letter. All throughout the letter, every exhortation is rooted in the need for you to live faithfully yourself and then encourage others to do the same. It is not faithful Christian living if you are on your own seeking to live a life that is faithful without uh, seeking to serve other Christians. It's not faithfulness to, 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 uh, to do so. Now notice then what the author says in verse 25. Basically, the, pers- the point of verse 25 is to further expound what he means by stirring one another up to love and to good works. He gives one negative statement and then one positive. So what he, what he says negatively is he says, you're not, so something you're not to do, you're not to forsake the assembling of, your, of yourselves together. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So the idea here is, is that there's no way that you can be encouraging one another if you're not actually at church. If you're not actually assembled with God's people, there's no way that you can be encouraging other people. And so uh, if you are, if the command is, in light of all these things that Christ has done, there is a a need for you to persevere, but also for your brothers and sisters to persevere. And you have a responsibility in helping them to persevere. You have a responsibility to to stir one another up to love and to good works. This means, by implication, you can't forsake the meeting with one another. Um, It's not just for you. It's for the sake of others. You see, others need your encouragement. They need to see you at church worshiping God. They need uh, to be benefited by your gifts. And if you decide not to come to church, then see, it's not just 
yourself that you're hurting. Of course, you're hurting yourself, but you're also hurting others. You are not obeying the command to seek, to stir one another up, to love and to good works. Uh, this is even further the reason why it's so important to be a member of the church, uh, why, why we're not just to be free-floating Christians. Uh, there needs to be a particular body of believers where you have committed to uh, being a part of, and you've said, I am going to lock arms with these brothers and sisters, and I'm going to make sure that I do whatever I can to serve them, to encourage them, that not one of them ever fails uh, to reach the mark. This is the reason why, beyond just personal Bible study and prayer, why the, why the worship of God is, in fact, so important. The reason why morning and evening worship is so important. The reason why the Wednesday night prayer meeting is so important. Um, it's not just good for your soul. It's good for the souls of others when you are there. And uh, this has always been um, the main way in which Christians show their true love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is, this is what the author says in, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Um, he knows that they love God because of the service that they give to the saints. So the, the heart of the true Christian is this, I love God, therefore I love all of those who have been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore I am going to strive to serve them because I love the Lord Jesus. They aren't perfect, but my Lord loves them. If my Lord loves them, then I love them. And the best way that you can serve God is serving other Christians. Whatever, whatever uh, you do to another Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ counts as having been done to himself. And therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, uh, you are to make the work, your labor within the church to be the highest of your priorities uh, in terms of your walk within the Christian life. It is for the sake of others. You are not to be on an island. Now notice as well, even further, the author speaks of this being the habit of some. So the idea is that even in this first century, so close to the days when the Lord Jesus Christ was walking on the earth, that even then this church struggled and others struggled. And the author knew it and brought uh, attention to the fact that there were in fact some that did forsake the assembling together. Um, as was the case then, so is the case now. There are always temptations for saying, you know, maybe it's not worth it. And there will always be some who choose not to gather with God's people. And what the author is saying is, is that that was a problem then? But what he's saying to the people he's addressing is, let it not be true of you. And that's the exhortation I give to you this evening as well. There will always be some who say, you know, it's just not that important to gather together. But brothers and sisters, let it not be true of you. Let it not be true of you. You have a need to be in the presence of God with God's people. They have a need to see you in the presence of God with God's people as well. That is the context in which you are to give them the encouragement that the author speaks of as well uh, in, uh, in verse 25. You are not to forsake the assembling uh, together of ourselves, but rather you are to exhort one another, exhort one another, encourage one another to go on, to persevere uh, in the Christian life. And then he gives a reason here as well. He says, and, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that he is speaking of here is the, is the day of judgment. The author is reminding the church that you must do this because there is, in fact, a day of judgment that is drawing near. Uh, the, the point is this. You, mu you must have your eyes fixed on this day for yourself. Uh, you have to be able to stand firmly on that day. You need to think about the reality that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a fearful thing. 
You need to think through and live in light of that day. But what he's also saying here is you need to encourage others to think through the reality that they must stand before Christ on that day as well. The idea is in light of the reality that all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all the more reason to, to, to remind and to exhort, to encourage our brothers and sisters, look, hold on, hold on, it's going to be worth it. On the day of judgment, nothing is going to matter about any earthly ambition, anything that you got in this life. The only thing that's going to matter is whether or not you held fast to your confession of faith. That's the only thing that's going to matter. And it's not just the only thing that's going to matter for you personally. It's the only thing that's going to matter for all of God's people. And in light of that truth, it is an obligation for you to consider the reality of that coming day and to make sure that all of God's people are preparing for it. Uh, That day is going to take many people by surprise. Uh, That's what what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. When they're saying peace and security, then suddenly there will be destruction that comes upon them. It will come like a thief in the night. But brothers and sisters, it's not to take you like a thief because you're not in the darkness, but in the light. And the way in which you stay in the light is by remaining in the fellowship of God's people, where there is mutual encouragement and fellowship and where there is mutual exhortation and, uh, to remember the reality of that coming day. In light of the day drawing near, be prepared yourself and make sure that everyone else is prepared as well. That's what the author here is saying. And so if you were to ask then, backing up again, again, we've been talking about the priests of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time. In light of all that Christ has done as your priest, how should you then live? The answer is threefold. You are to live in communion with God. You are to persevere, holding fast to your confession, and you are to encourage others to do the same. Uh, brothers and sisters, I ask you this evening, is this a good description of your walk before the Lord Jesus Christ? Are these the things that you are committed to doing? Are these the things that you are doing? Uh, do you despise the world in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you maintain your confession? Do you, do you prize communion with God above all other things in this life? Is it the joy of your heart to be with God's people that you would say in your heart, you know, better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand days elsewhere. Uh, better is one day because I love to be able to draw near to my God. And does this love for God lead you to seeking always to strive to encourage your brothers and sisters to do the same, to, to, to point out the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to point out the glory, the beauty of communion with Him, and to encourage them to hold fast to their confession of faith. Uh, Brothers and sisters, good theology always leads to good living. It it is always to lead to that. That is is what it ought to do. If you are to understand truly the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe it with all of your heart, the, the way in which this ought to manifest itself is you devoting yourself to these three things. If Christ really is the priest after the order of Melchizedek who's passed through the heavens, Uh, Your faith in this will be seen in your drawing near to God, your holding fast to the confession, and you encouraging others to do the same. And even as we think about the last day, on the last day, it is whether or not you have done these things that will truly manifest whether or not your confession of faith was ever real. Did you ever truly believe that Jesus Christ was the high priest? On the day, on the last day, all those who it, is, it will be revealed 
who drew near to God regularly, who loved the presence of God, who held fast to their confession, and who loved the saints. It is they who will be told, well done, my good and faithful servant. And to the rest, Christ will say, be gone, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the encouragement that you are to give, the exhortation you are to give, in light of the reality that, brothers and sisters, truly, the day is drawing near. The day is drawing near. The Lord Jesus Christ will return, and all will stand before His judgment. Let us live in light of that great day, and let us. And may it be that God will grant us the grace so to live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His priesthood. How we do thank you for the wisdom of your Word, which teaches us not just all of the wonderful details about everything that He has done, uh, helping us to understand the Old Testament, helping us to understand uh, Christ's priesthood, His death, uh, how He is the mediator of the New Covenant, uh, what it means that He has made an expiation for sins, uh, the, the testamentary character of the covenant. Lord, so many things we learn in terms of the details of theology. And yet also, Lord, how thankful we are that Your Word also teaches us how we are to live in light of these truths. May it be, O Lord, that You would grant us the grace to see the wonder of all the truths that have been revealed concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and His priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And may it be, Lord, that You would grant us the grace also to live in light of these truths well by Your Spirit. Lord, may it be that we would always uh, uh, take communion with You to be the highest and greatest of all of our enjoyments in this world. May it be, Lord, that this would lead us to hold fast to our confession. And Lord, we do pray that not one of us that not one of us would ever fail to reach the goal. Lord, grant us this grace, we do pray. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, We'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word 
and zeal for his name.